Any questions, reflections from last week? Any exciting things happening in any of your lives? <clears throat> I missed last week because I went to the this women lead change lead change conference for mm -hmm. two days. And I will say that it was just it was really good. A lot of focus on inclusion, which was great to see. But I definitely could see and hear some of the things that contrasted with kind of the work that we're doing in this group and the study that we're doing, like hustle, grind, like all those things. So it's just, I just felt myself like being a bit more reflective and observing versus being swept up into all of that narrative all over again. I'm, I'm certainly sorry I missed last week. I at least was applying some of what we've been doing so far with that experience. Yes, I'm sorry if this is ruining you for all conferences forever. <laughs> oh. I'm ruined for all conferences. It, oh gosh. Yeah, to hear you're you're listening to people and you can hear all I think last week I don't know if this made it into the recording, but I think it was at the beginning of last week we talked about how revealing all of these structures it just ruins you for the rest of the world and like when you're at a conference and your keynote speakers trying to hype everybody up and you're just like, wow, that is meritocratic BS right there. Or wow, that is some bullshit job stuff. <laughs> it's both fun to recognize the learning, I think, and also it can be disturbing. Yeah, I was just thinking as you're saying that, Rachel, I was thinking about I recently left a women's business community for a number of reasons, but as I'm comparing like the vibe in that one and the way we talk here, this hustle girl boss kind of garbage that like we have to just work harder and grind. I hear my talking about high school sophomores. I have a high school sophomore also. And she's like, mom, it's time to grind. And I'm like, oh my God, where is she getting that? But she has to like push herself to that level of like fatigue and exhaustion to achieve. But I'm oh, I'm just conscious that like women have absorbed that mes messaging and especially women business owners. And it's pretty punishing. If we're not careful, it's really punishing. And then that, therefore, if something doesn't work, it's just because you haven't worked hard enough, not to mention cleared up your mind trash, right? There's all that whole, it's your fault because you don't think good thoughts and you don't work as hard as everybody else. Anyway. Yeah. I'm just comparing. Yeah, totally. I just, a couple, a week ago, a couple weeks ago, I finished a book by the, the new book by Naomi Klein. Did I already say this last week? I think that I did, but I'll, I'm going to say a different thing about this book <laughs> in response to that. Which is that throughout the whole book, she's comparing herself or not comparing herself, but she's reflecting on Naomi Wolf as her sort of digital doppelganger that people confuse the two Naomi's all the time. And that maybe in the early 2000s, that made a lot of sense because they were both more to the left and talking about similar issues in similar ways. But that as Naomi Wolf has moved more and more into circles that are largely populated by the reactionary right, it's gotten weird. And one of the, I wouldn't call it a theme of the book, but something that sort of comes back a few different times is her, is Naomi Klein talking about sort of the recognition that Naomi Wolf 
was always that third wave feminist where it was, these are the things that we need to do to get power in the structures that already exist. Whereas a more leftist and critical feminist perspective would be like, no, the structures are the problem. We don't need to play by men's rules. We don't need to play by white supremacy rules or any of these other systems that that say who get who has power, who has influence, who gets to get paid what. The point is to break those things down. And Naomi Wolf was always on that very no the structure is fine. We just need to to figure out how to play this particular game. And I girl the girl boss thing is a hundred percent in that 90s pseudo feminism that wolf really represents or represented at the time and it's certainly that's the kind of feminism i grew up on for sure and taken a not taken a lot but i would say it's there's an unlearning process there right it's so deep and we can roll our eyes pretty easily i think at things like girl boss right even if we didn't 10 years ago or even five years ago or even three years ago but like now that's pretty it's pretty easy to be like, oh, that's cringe, <laughs> right? But it is it is um, attractive and seductive. That's probably not the right word to use, but it's attractive for the same reason that that kind of feminism was attractive perhaps to us in the 90s. So now I'm dating myself, but... I wonder if part of the attraction is like the trigger that it amplifies. What's... So much of what we're talking about today, I think, and what you were talking about in your chapter about the validation spiral is we're seeking that thing. And to not be a girl boss or to not be seen as hustling is like a triggering thing. Like it's easy to be like, you're, I do want to be seen that way. And I'm seeing all of this stuff play out. And my family's pretty close and pretty dynamic. And we have about three generations that all interact. And um, the difference between myself as like the only sister in the family. I have five brothers. None of us went to college. We're all entrepreneurs. We're all doing this very differently. And then my mom straddling the world of what she was raised in as feminism, trying to support my brothers, also hearing me and just how different those things are. And a little bit more context is one of my brother's is like a kind of like Tony Robbins style sales team builder. Mm-hmm. And he makes tons of money. Good for him for that. But we run business very different. And yeah, it's just, it's been interesting, particularly this chapter or this week and the resources, like seeing those strands. Yeah. Does he, would he espouse similar values to yours outside of work? Yeah, I I wish I could say yes. <laughs> I was just curious. I'm just cu- yeah. curious how sometimes like the values that we say we have and then our style of work, especially can be so far apart. And that, that disconnection is extremely fascinating to me. Yeah, I think that he would say that our values are the same. And I think I'm too close to it to be like, your values are the same as mine. But he would say, 
if he gives a woman a position inside of his company, it's because they hustled really hard. They showed up. They showed that they were worthy. They outworked the men. Like, it's mm-hmm. still that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That's. I attended one panel that the, the name of the panel was How to, to Create a Culture That Allows for More Women Leaders. But the panel, it was two men and a woman And on all three of them, I know, all three of them kept talking about what a woman needs to do in in the culture and the organization. And y'all be proud of me. I raised my hand and I said, hey, one thing I've noticed here is we've been all talking about what the woman needs to do, needs to hustle, needs to demonstrate results, to be a leader, all those things. Can you tell me about anything that you're doing in your organizations to embody the culture for women leadership and the pat answer was we have some ergs like employee resource groups okay like it it was just but it was just like oh it was it was a very strong contrast to again to like what we're talking about here but it also shows me sadly how much more work there needs to be done in changing the whole narrative around it wow I'm speechless. I know stuff like that happens, but to hear there are two men on this panel about making more inclusive workplace. Anyhow, it's it is both shocking and then not at all. I just this morning did an interview with a woman who wrote a book about power sharing within organizations. And I'm so excited to get this interview out to folks because it was both we talked about the ideas and the language around it, but then we also talked about what does this look like on a daily basis. Um, and this kind of topic came up is what are all the different reasons that a woman, for instance, or a black person or an indigenous person doesn't speak up in a meeting? There are many. And simply saying, all right, who's got ideas? Everyone's ideas are welcome is not enough to change most of those pieces that keep a particular person from speaking up. So that was one thing. What was the other thing that I was going to say about that? I don't know. That was the main thing. Yeah. Any other you know, thoughts? Oh, know, yeah. I just wanted to, I think I posted something on LinkedIn recently about this idea of like where the onus rests, because I posted something recently that was about, because it was national, October is national disability month. And so they like neurodivergence falls under that. And there was some pieces in the Harvard business review about what managers can do to create a more inclusive communication environment for people with autism or ADHD. And those are the two that they featured in the article. And it was very clear that the responsibility in that case, like they were, the article was directed towards managers, right? Mm-hmm. The article wasn't like, if you are somebody with a difference, you have to do this. So I find it so interesting that we're still having the conversations about how like, Women just need to work harder and sell their work and blah, blah, blah. Keep your head down. You work up all that shit. And like I where I'm seeing a little bit of a little bit. And I pay attention to the ADHD stuff because I mentioned my daughter's neurodivergent. I'm seeing a little bit of a shift. I'm like, where does the responsibility lie or how is it distributed? Maybe is another way to say this. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like baffled by the fact that we're still saying if women would just work louder, we would promote them more. Yeah, I know. Baffle is the right word, the right verb. Yeah. I remember what the other thing 
was that I was going to say, and it's totally related to this as well. My friends, Kate Strathman or Kate Tyson now and Charlie Gilkey were having a conversation about a, a post that Charlie had made where he talked about how everyone wants to switch to a four-day work week. Not everyone, but lots of organizations are talking about switching to a four-day work week because it's going to give employees more flexibility. It's going to lead to better work-life balance. But his point was, if you shift to a four-day work week without rescoping people's jobs, without making sure that the responsibilities they have can be done in 32 hours instead of 40 hours then you just end up with people working 40 hours, four days a week, or 50 hours, four days a week. You And you increase stress because you are, you're increasing the work intensity by reducing the schedule, which is not a reason not to go to a four-day work week, just that the four-day work week is like the last thing that has to happen. The first thing that has to happen is People need to be in the right jobs. They need to have the right job descriptions. They need to have the right set of responsibilities and right set of tasks on their plate. And until all of that happens and the team goes through a collective unlearning process about the value of working more, you can't uh, tactically make a shift to a four-day work week. And I think that's it is right on the same systems thinking, strategic thinking plane that we're talking here about identity, right? Is if you don't create an organization where the spaces themselves, whether that's meetings or Asana or ClickUp or whatever, that are conducive to participation by everyone, if you don't give people multiple ways of participating, if you don't give if you don't acknowledge the kind of work that is traditionally done by women and marginalized people in the workplaces, if you don't acknowledge that as valuable, then you're going to keep reproducing these same systems. And as you reproduce those same systems, you get the same outcomes. And that's not good for your people. It's not good for your company. And it's not good for all sorts of things in between. Any other thoughts before we get into this week? All right, let's do it. Rachel, thank you for the case study. That was very helpful. Where's my thing? All right. This really is, as Ash pointed out, on topic for, for this week. We're talking about, so last week we talked about sort of identity and difference at work and the different identities that we bring to our jobs and how that can lead to a wealth of resources at our disposal. But this week, I want to talk about how work can help us make ourselves. Because I think when we start talking about conversations that are adjacent to post-work or anti-capitalism, we start talking as if work is a bad thing. And there are a lot of systems around work that are very bad. There's a lot of business models that make work and workers into sort of an enemy. There is very bad exploitation that happens. There's self-exploitation that happens. And work is a, a core part of who we are. And it doesn't have to be a bad thing. And so that's what I want to talk about today, how we use work 
or how we're prevented from using work to shape our own identities in really positive ways. So we're going to talk first and foremost about making ourselves through work. Second, we're going to talk about why we can't or why we don't make ourselves through work. And then we're going to talk about how we can. And then we'll have time for Q&A and discussion. I don't have any cute whiteboards set up for this week. There's going to be a lot of opportunities for free writing and for reflection this week instead of whiteboards. Let's dive in. I wanted to start this week with this term, homo faber or at least that's the way you would pronounce it in Latin class. I'm not very good at, I'm, I was paid way too much attention in Latin class and I cannot anglicize Latin pronunciations. Homo faber is often translated as a working man or a working person. And it's contrasted with this idea of homo ludens, which is a playing person. So we've got the working person and we've got the playing person. But the actual term, like if we were to translate it from Latin, homo faber does not mean a person who works or a working person. It means a person who makes or creates. And the reason I wanted to start with this term is because it is all over a whole host of different writings and thinkers work on work. So Marx makes use of it among many other people. And it's a really old concept too. This idea that we're not just homo sapiens, but we're homo faber has been around for at least 2000 years. Um, And the drive to create through work is a central feature of how many thinkers understand who we are as people. Um, And this is one of those things where we get to That cliche challenge to like, why is it in America that when somebody asks you who you are and what you do, you respond with your occupation? We respond with our occupation for a lot of good reasons alongside the not so good reasons, right? Many of us draw really meaningful parts of our identity from the work that we do. I certainly do. I would have a really hard time completely divorcing myself from the meaning and identity that I derive from work. And I I would venture to say the same is true for all of you as well. And I think this is one of the things that I noticed in your reflections as well, is that a few of you were wrestling with this idea of who am I outside of work? And this week I wanted to ask, maybe it doesn't matter. That's not a question. What I wanted to ask is maybe who are you with work? Who does work? What does, yeah, who does work help you become? And so I'm wanting to complicate some of these ideas a little bit more. Ash says, is this work as in paid? Wondering about the trappings of money for creation. Ash, that's what this slide is about. We're going to get there. <laughs> but first, I wanted to quote a piece, quote a couple of lines from one of the recommended resources for this week, which was the first chapter of My Job Myself. And he's essentially just focusing on Marx here. But in Marx's work, this idea of homo faber, the, the person who makes, the person who works, is central to how he understands people, um, who we are. And part of the product of um, Marxism or part of the project of Marxism or or Marxist communism is this idea that um, 
when we legitimately free people to work, we can make ourselves and our societies better. The problem, of course, is that Marx would argue that we're not really free in the way that we work because we have to work to survive. So anyhow, we're not going to get too far into to Marx for today, but I thought this, this passage was important. So Gini says, for Marx, how people work and what they produce at work necessarily affect how and what they think, as well as their personal sense of self, freedom, and independence both the process and the product of our labor, help us to know who and what we are. The process of work both in both forms and informs us. We acquire self-definition and self-recognition through labor. In Marx's view, we need work in order to finish and refine our natures. And in work, we create our individual identities as well as our collective history. I think that... This probably seems pretty self-evident, and at the same time, it seems pretty contradictory to what we've talked about in the previous five weeks, right? It feels we've been trying to separate ourselves from how work makes us. And as I said, this week, I want to complicate that, and I want to say, what could work look like if it does legitimately help form us, make us, inform us, help us get to that next place of self-definition and self-recognition. Um, and at the same time, as Ash points out in her uh, comment, and as we're going to get to in a, in a minute or two, there are all sorts of forms of work that really work against this. And so that's a big part of what we're going to be talking about today. And of course, the tricky part about all of this is, as Ash pointed out, the fuzzy idea of work. What is work? Is there a particular kind of work that makes us in a meaningful and helpful way? And is there a particular kind of work that can harm us or stall out our process of self-actualization and self-recognition? So I wanted to think very broadly about work to answer this or to speak to this idea of work making us, or work helping us make ourselves. And so when we're talking about work, there are a lot of different kinds of work. When we say that word, we could mean so, so many different things. Sure, we could talk about wage labor, whether that's earning a certain number of dollars per hour, whether that's a salary, whether that's the money that you make yourself in exchange for your time and labor, that sort of paid work category it tends to be what we think of when we say, what does work mean or what is work? But there are all sorts of other things as well, right? There's caring work, shopping is work, there's creative work, cleaning, home repair, learning, activism, meal prep, politics. These are all different forms of work. And by no means, of course, is this diagram in any way complete with different forms of labor. So thinking about work in general or work in its many different forms, I'm curious if any of you feel like there's a particular kind of work that you do get that sense of making yourself in a really positive way or moving yourself forward in a positive way. Anybody have 
that kind of relationship to a type of work? Hi, Tara. It's Rachel. Hi. The other Rachel. Hi. I would say learning is for certain any aspect and it can be recreational too, but I think in the, in the context of professional work, just that idea of growing and expanding my knowledge, my perspective, doing stuff like this, that really feels connected to what was the original, just that those pause, the positivity that goes along with work. Awesome. Yeah, I, I feel that deeply as well. That's probably obvious. Anyone else? Yeah, like work, any kind of work. Is that what yeah. you're asking? Any kind of work. I have found that working in my garden, like I've created a garden for the first time in the last two years. And that feels like really good work, like on so many levels, but I'm we're eating food from our garden and it just feels like the useful, it's so useful. Yeah. It's also I, enjoyable and all those things, but it's, I haven't made it cost less money yet than going to the store because gardening is actually expensive, <laughs> but I'm working toward it also being a net, like anything related to homestead, not homesteading, I'm hardly a homesteader, but anything related to creating things that support my being and my family's well-being feels like really good work to me, which is interesting because I don't think about it like as housework or, but it feels generative to me. Yeah. I love that visual too of there's the time that you spend working in the garden, but then there's also the, and the making identity in that process. But then there's also, as you said, the consuming of what you've made in the garden that is literally making your body as well. It is an embodied form of work from start to finish. Yeah. It's like when you were, I was reading or you were talking about like work, thinking of work is like, how can I be useful in a, in the community system that I'm in? And I like stuff where I feel useful is as I'm re-envisioning my business. Like I'm at hundred percent starting with what is useful and needed. And then of course, the next question is, do I enjoy that? Do I want to do that? But instead of starting with what's my passion and purpose in the world, it's like, where do I see a need? Like, where can I actually be useful? Where does someone, and then I feel like that also would make work easier, but yeah, being useful and well used. Yeah. That's going to be a perfect segue into, if not the next slide, one of the, <laughs> one of the ones to come soon. So thank you for that. Anyone else? I, I want to second the gardening thing for a different reason though. I think mm -hmm. I still say, the best job I ever had was working at a, a garden center plant nursery. And that at some point in my life, I want to get back into horticulture. And I've always been into farming and agriculture. And I think the reason is probably something like it feels very real, real and fundamental. I think in a world where we've created, especially being an educated computer worker service person, we live in a world where so many things are just made up and manufactured. I don't mean physically manufactured, coaching, what even is that? And it's not to say it's not important, but it's just this thing we've come up with. Whereas, yeah, it's the opposite of a bullshit job. It's you're growing something, you're working with things that grow, you're working with other organisms that live on the earth. And it's just so much more fundamental than whatever weird computer jobs I've had since then. <laughs> yeah. 
That reminds me of something that Natalie Lucier told me in an interview earlier this year. She, we were talking about her move from the big city to the farmette that they live on, that her family lives on now. And one of the things that we were talking around was like the consumption part of this as well. And she was saying how their house is, it's got the stuff that they need, but it doesn't have any extra stuff in it because she would much rather spend her money on the work that they do on the farm because it's literally alive. There is that literal relationship between the stuff that's in the ground and the animals that graze on it that she finds a much better use of her financial resources. And so I think there's perhaps an interesting thing to think about here too, around one of the flip sides of work in our economy is always going to be consumption. And so I'm always really curious to consider how does X, Y, or Z thing about work flip around to be A, B, or C thing about consumption on the other side. So what you shared made me think about that. Yeah, interesting. Awesome. Y'all teed up the rest of this session really well. So thank you for that. Speaking of usefulness, I was right. It was the next slide. So William Morris wrote this really fantastic essay, I want to say in the late 1800s, that's simply called Useful Work Versus Useless Toil. And he was very much a Marxist. He was also very much an artist and a writer. And so someone who was thinking both at like an economic and political level and also on the like creative and very human level as well. And this essay just drips with this. But he defines useful work as having three component parts. One, useful work always has a hope of rest, which doesn't mean that it's necessarily easy work. It just means that at some point, you're going to get to rest and recharge before you go back to that work again. And gardening here might be a great example. Like you work, you go out and work in the garden knowing that you can go back inside and watch Netflix if you want to, or you can go to bed, right? There's a sort of cyclical process of work and rest and work and rest that's inherent to that type of work. Um, second, there's a hope of the use of the product of one's work. And in a material economy, so one where we're actually talking about making stuff, that this is a really easy sort of thing to understand is, are you making a thing that you're going to use or are you, are you making a thing that someone else profits off of? So that's what he meant at that time. Today, I think we need to massage this idea a little bit so that we can say it's not necessarily the hope that we're going to use the product that we make, although that's really helpful in the, the case of gardening or for me baking bread or for someone else making a piece of furniture. That absolutely makes that much more useful work. But if I think about my more immaterial labor as well, do I have some control and some use of the thing that I'm making, even if I'm not like eating it for dinner? So that's how I think about the hope of the use of the product. And then finally, there's a hope of pleasure in 
and of the work itself. So do we enjoy the thing? Is it satisfying? And that doesn't mean it has to be fun necessarily, but do we derive some sense of pleasure, maybe simply from the meaning of the work? Or do we derive some sense of satisfaction knowing that we're applying our skills in a valuable way? Right. So those are how that those three things are how he defines useful work. On the other hand, we have useless toil, which we can totally see is just the reverse of useful work. Um, but he talks about useless toil specifically as the kind of work that gets done that um, is chiefly for someone else's profit and chiefly to make things that other people who are also doing useless toil will buy, right? And so whether that's a digital product or whether that's a physical product, whether it's something that's coming off of the assembly line or something that's made in someone's home office, it's it, the making of the product itself or the product itself is something that while someone might want to buy it, while someone might need to buy it, the actual desire for that object is not real. It's the desire is manufactured itself. So this is how, again, this is how Morris describes the difference between useful work and useless toil. And I think this is really helpful for not just looking at paid labor, but looking at all different kinds of forms of work, whether it's housework, whether it's relational work, whether it's political work. We can see both sides of this in just about any way, in, in any human activity. This is our first free write for this um, particular session. And I'm hoping that you can reflect on those three qualities of useful work. Um, and I think you've done some of that already uh, without my prompting. So hopefully this um, will feel pretty good. Um, but first and foremost, uh, I want you to think about not just the work that you do, but maybe the way you're looking to transform your relationship to work. Um, first, what kind of rest do you need to maintain a good relationship to yourself, others, and the world at large? Second, what do you want to work on so that you have a closer connection to the product of your work? So again, it might not be something that you yourself are using, but something that you feel a distinct connection to. And then third, what kinds of work do you find satisfying in and of themselves or itself? All right. So those three questions are up on your screen. I'm going to give you about, let's say about five minutes to work on these three. And then we'll come back and make a note if there's anything you notice that you want to share. We'll go to about 115.
All right. Anyone come up with anything that surprised them? This is about this, but about what we were talking about earlier. Sure. I'm realizing that inside of business spaces, we're still treating being a woman as like a curable condition versus like neurodivergence or a disability as something that like the system has to learn how to work around. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I'll just throw out there too, that extends to race and all dimensions of gender, right? Yeah. Last week, I very briefly touched on the white supremacy culture characteristics, right? And the idea there is the assimilation that's put on people from different cultural backgrounds than the white supremacist uh, culture background, right? And so it's, yes, women is a treatable condition. Woman is a treatable condition. Black is a treatable condition. Indigenous is a treatable condition. And I think for as much as the there's new awareness around neurodivergence in the workplace, the challenge with neurodivergence is that one, that's not, that's a term with many different flavors. And two, it's hidden. And people who have any of the given conditions that we put under that umbrella have spent their whole lives learning how to hide that condition as well, whether they knew it or not. And so while we might be able to say we need to change the workplace to make it more inclusive to people, we also have to be willing to acknowledge that we don't even know the full extent of what people are doing to try to change themselves not speaking from personal experience or anything. <laughs> Anybody else come up with something that surprised them or stood out to them as, oh, that I should maybe change something here. Nyla? I'm not going to say I want to change it, but I was fascinated to learn. Like today's the day I'm not seeing clients and it is the best I've had in a really long time because I'm actually consuming. I'm not just putting things out. I'm actually letting my, I spent an hour, I went to the gym. I read for an hour and a half. I'm doing this class. I'm going to therapy later. And I was like, you know what? It's it's not like rest and I'm not like laying prone, although that would also be nice. <laughs> I can feel myself taking things in, which is interesting when we talk about like production versus consumption. For me, seeking that balance allows me to feel at ease with the work I'm doing. That heals my relationship with work. When I'm always spending, like putting it out there, I'm drained. I have to consume as well as create. And I'm just like getting cool with that. Yeah. That immediately makes me think of distance running or really any kind of endurance training is you learn at what kind of intervals you need to refuel right? So if I'm running a half marathon, I'm going to refuel about once every 30 minutes. And so that means like literally just take down a gel that's worth 200 calories because my body needs those 200 calories to keep going the next three miles and then take another one and go the next three miles after that. And that's a physiological requirement. Requirement. Maybe I could finish a, a half marathon without feeling, but I couldn't do it fast. I couldn't do it well. I would hate myself at the end. <laughs> and I think when it comes to especially creative work 
or any kind of caring work, which seeing clients as a coach or as a mentor or as a consultant or any number of things, that's caring work. That has the same, if not physiological needs, although those are there, it has the same kind of mental fuel needs, which absolutely can be thought of as a form of rest. I think that's a great observation. Anybody else? Julie? Yeah, I just think it's, I think first it's important to have an expansive definition of rest, like that it's not just like lying prone and it's, it's really whatever kind of gets us back into our selfness from like the other, the work and like focused on this like active outward things. I just, just acknowledging that it's different for everyone. Like for me, it's like walks, it's spending time with my family. It's just not thinking about work because I've had the experience where like, even when I'm only, even if I was only working like 20 hours a week, the, all the other hours of the week, I'm just thinking about it and worrying about it. And that does, that is not, I might as well be working 40 hours a week. Honestly, it'd be more productive than just sitting there and worrying about it, except for I wanted to be with my kid, but then I'm distracted when I'm with my kid. Yeah, that, that was my, what I was thinking about. And then as far as I'm curious to, to see how for others, like I, I'm a, I'm like a very, I love planning like events and programs and things that like exist in the world after not physical, I do creating physical things also. I like crafting, but like for my work, I'm, I design programs and events and things like that. That's what I, that's what I really enjoy because there's this like finished product. I'm like, oh, here we are. We're all at this event. Look, people are enjoying it. It's like very tangible to me. And I think about, I always thought I'm a Capricorn and I love creating things and I'm very earthy. And But I'm, I'm curious if that's what, what other people find satisfying too, because to me, that's also in alignment with just that basic, it's useful. You can see it and touch it versus writing marketing copy all day long, which just goes out into the ethers and doesn't have that tangibility, that tangible factor that I completed a project factor and it's doing something for people. That's interesting. For me, it's almost completely the opposite in that the stuff that I find satisfying is thinking about stuff and having the space to, to think about things and synergize the world and pull things together and to have time to write that or have a really interesting podcast conversation or or that kind of stuff where I don't find that much satisfaction in things physically in the world. That's the stuff I have to do to make to keep us alive. <laughs> and yeah, so for me it's almost exactly opposite. I'm with you, Julie, and I'm not in the sense of creating something physical necessarily, but what I wrote down was just creating something that people will, that I know people will directly consume and hopefully prompt them or people around them to action. Um, So I'm thinking like my work as like a copy editor for government reports that no one's going to read versus like content I create for my coaching business that I know are going like directly into the eyeballs and brains of people who find it interesting and useful and entertaining, hopefully. So that's where, and this, none of this, Terry, you asked about if there's anything surprising. None of this is surprising. It's just like a reminder. I really need to continue working on the balance of 
what I do with my time. But anyways, yeah, Julie, it's, yeah, I think there is like a, even if it's not for an event, isn't it's semi-tangible, but not again, it's not a physical thing, but it's an event, a piece of content or whatever, but just knowing that it's just going directly to someone and isn't just sitting on a shelf somewhere would be more satisfying. I think for surprise. Oh, go ahead. I think for me, I'm realizing that cooking by myself and then presenting a meal is restful, but having anybody in the kitchen with me is not. There's this, I guess what I'm wondering, is it just the product that's done at the end? Because I'm also somebody who, gosh, it's just so nice to just have the space to think about things. But I feel like the creative process in itself needs to fit a certain set of parameters in order for it to be restorative. It's not necessarily building or doing this thing. Although I will say that as far as creating spaces that feel good inside of homes or offices, that's always going to be rejuvenating. There's the physical element of moving furniture, but just the space change. But again, I would always prefer to just do it alone and then have somebody come inside be like, I don't actually like what you did here. Can you change it instead of in the process of it, somebody having an opinion? Yeah. I will just say that I'm exact same way with the kitchen. Sean will ask me explicitly, okay, when do you need to be in the kitchen? Because as much as he likes sharing the kitchen with me, he knows that I get real weird. (laughs) <laughs> when he's in the kitchen with me, whether we're working on the same thing or not, it's, it's just a no in our house. <laughs> Rachel? Rachel F? Yeah. the And this was on the surprise factor for me was for question number three. As much as I identify with my business work was I wrote down just parenting and raising someone I hope is going to be a conscious global citizen is really satisfying and also tangible as well. But I'd never really thought before as parenting as work. So I thought that's some, again, it's a narrative that, oh, that's not real work. You're just doing what you're supposed to be doing. But, but yeah, I I thought that was an interesting thing that came out of my mind in that exercise. Yeah. Yeah. There's even an economic name for that kind of work, which is reproductive labor. And it's not just reproductive in terms of the reproducing of the species. It's also reproductive as in the reproduction of labor power. And so the work that we do at home, preparing for the next day of work or helping the kid prepare for the next day of school or really anything that gets us back out the door the next day or back in the home office the next day is reproductive labor. And parenting absolutely on a generational scale falls into that category. And there's just, there's some finance, some really fascinating theory around how we account for and how we more often don't account for reproductive labor. And it's, When economists and labor theorists look at it, there's always a certain amount of reproductive labor for productive labor. And productive labor doesn't happen without reproductive labor. But we often don't see it. We almost always don't account for it. And we... I think it's not so much about turning parenting into work because that creates its own problems, right? But it is about looking at our different activities through the lens of what's satisfying, what what we take pleasure in, what we find meaningful, and then also what the relationship of that work is to the economic 
regime that we're in? And how does the way we raise our kid, the way we garden, the way we bake bread, how do those things interact with or subvert that economic regime? Okay, sorry, that was like way out of left field. Okay, not you, Rachel, me. Um, (laughs) Wonderful. I'm really appreciating the reflections on this, and it leads us pretty well into our next piece, which is thinking about how we relate to these different kinds of work. So thinking of ourselves, thinking about how useful work is a tool for making ourselves while useless toil is actually a force that makes us forget ourselves. And in theory, we call this alienation. Alienation is the process through which we are cut off from ourselves, our kin, and our world. And Marx, of course, uh, would argue that alienation is a necessary product of capitalism, that wage labor under capitalism is always alienating. But the I think theorists have taken this concept quite a number of directions since Marx's time, and we can see mechanisms of alienation all throughout society and the economy. One of those theorists' names is Rahel Yegi, and she wrote a nice, big, very dense book just called Alienation. And she says that alienation is always bound up with the question, how do we want to live? And that the concept of alienation seeks to identify what prevents us from living well, and further, what prevents us from even asking the question, right? So I gave a talk at a sort of small business conference up in Williamsport on Friday, and in the kind of Q&A session afterwards, someone pointed out or someone shared that in a conversation they had with a new college student or maybe someone who was thinking about college, that they asked them, instead of what do you want to do for a living, how do you want to live? Before we think about what the career is, how do you want to live? And everyone else at the the table around us was like, oh my God, no one ever asked me that question. How different would things be if someone had asked, what, 15, 16, 17, 18, how do you want to live? If someone had asked at 20, 21, 22, 23, as you're entering the job market, how do you want to live? If your boss asked you that at 30 or 31 or 32, how do you want to live? And how does this job fit into that? But not only is it a question we don't ask, it is a question that we are in many ways prevented from asking. And I think we it would be served well to pick that apart a little bit. So the way Yegi defines alienation or an alienated relation is an alienated relation is a deficient relation one has to oneself, to the world, and to others. And she gives these, these different ways that alienation can make itself known. Indifference, instrumentality, instrumentalization, this is a very big word for just being turned into a tool, (laughs) reification, turned into a thing, absurdity, artificiality, isolation, meaninglessness, impotence, all these ways of characterizing the relations in question are forms of this deficiency, are forms of alienation. And so far, I've heard you all talk in the on the positive 
on the flip side of this, right? We started off talking about what useful work is. And so you were talking about things that had meaning, things that made you not feel impotent, right? Things that made you feel like I can do this thing that's useful. I can put my time and energy into something that has this cool application, things that put you in relation to others, right? So things that are not isolating, things that are not artificial. And so it's interesting to me to hear the examples that you gave of these things that fall into sort of the broad category of useful work being in direct opposition to this subject of alienation or this um, subjectivity, rather, of alienation um, and the different ways that Yegi describes it. So she also says that alienation has two components. The first is one of conformity. Alienation is a process through which we live according to others' desires. And that could be our boss's desire. It could be the market's desire, right? For those of us who are business owners, if you feel like you're always at the whim of the market, you're always at the whim of the client, that can be a form absolutely of alienation. It could also be like we've talked a lot about gender issues today. It could be women feeling that they are always in relation to the needs and desires of men. So that's one aspect of alienation, the ways in which it compels us to live according to others' desires. And then the other piece of alienation, and I think this one is really salient for waged work especially, is living as a thing or as a tool, as opposed to living as a self-directed agent. So when we answer questions like, what forms of rest do you need? What kind of work do you want to be working on so that you can have a closer relationship to it? What kind of, what was the third question? What kind of work makes you satisfied, right? What kind of work do you find meaning and satisfaction in? Those questions are all questions that can only be answered by a self-directed agent. But the problem that we have is because we do exist in this relation of alienation is that a lot of people, maybe you, maybe not you, but a lot of people, your clients, your team members, the people that you mentor, they can't answer those questions or they have a really hard time answering those questions because of their state of alienation, because they have learned to see themselves as a thing or a tool that others use for profit or for any benefit that is not directed toward their own. And so that goes to these idea, this idea of instrumentalization, that's your dictionary.com word for today, and reification. So alienation forces conform conformity on us, and it also forces this idea of, of being used as a tool. And I think anyone who's worked uh, definitely for somebody else, probably having worked for themselves, we have some experience or some familiarity with that idea of feeling like we're no more than a tool. I wanted to use Yegi's questions as prompts. And I think based on the conversations that we've had so far, I think this is going to be pretty effective. So again, We need to put on our hats as self-directed agents and remember that our answers to these questions are not about someone else's needs or desires. And at the same time, they don't have to be 
they don't have to be isolating either. It can be you in connection, but it has to be you choosing that connection, you owning that connection, as opposed to something that you are simply a tool or a thing in relation to. So these are the three questions that Yegi posed. How do you want to live? What prevents you from living that way? And what prevents you from asking the question? These are big, hairy, broad questions, but I think that they can reveal a lot. So I'm going to give you five minutes again to write on these, and then we'll come back and see what y'all came up with.
All right. Same question as before. Anything surprise you in what you came up with for this one? I was surprised that it it seems like I just want to live as an elder, that I want to get to elderhood somehow. And yeah, I was expecting more of, I want to live carefree and travel the world and do these things. And I think what's actually here is I want to digest the world in a way where I can be accessible when I'm needed later, Mm. which is so weird. Uh, Tell me more what you mean by being an elder. Like, what does that look like to you? Like being the witchy old lady in the woods that people come and seek out for weird advice or emotional support or whatever. To just be that weird person that isn't like, here, come, I have all this great stuff. But to be like a person who's living life that people are like, oh, you've done life in a way that I want to do life. Okay, so what I hear from that is someone who's sought out as opposed to someone who is like on the corner shilling their wares. Yeah, that's a good reflection. Yeah, the other thing that I hear in it too is, and you didn't say this, but I think it to me, the, the terms that you've used imply this, which is a rootedness. And alienation is the opposite in many ways of a sense of rootedness or being rooted, having uh, those really strong connections, whether to place or to people or to purpose. And yeah, alienation is, is this concept of severing those ties. And yeah, it, that was immediately what came to mind when you said, elder, I was like, oh, that sounds rooted. And when I was answering the question, what keeps you from asking the question, it was like, fear of death, live for today, you might not have tomorrow, make your dreams real now. And also this fear that I'm like asking the wrong questions. Is this even the right question? Should I am I taking myself away from the thing that I should be focused on by asking these things. It's... The thing, tell me more about the thing you should be focused on. Is it a specific thing you have in mind or is it like a more nebulous concern? It's, it's more nebulous, but it's also, yeah, I guess it continues with the theme of not having gone to college. It's I didn't do what I was quote unquote supposed to do in my twenties. I didn't like drink and party a bunch. There's these limits that I don't feel like I've tested, which by the traditional textbook are like the things that you should want to and care about exploring. And so sometimes I wonder if I'm like tricking myself out of things that are Mm. scary or hard. Yeah. (laughs) Or just different or new. Not that I regret at this point in my life, not partying like an animal in my twenties. I'm fine with it. But There are some questions about dominant culture and what dominant culture might be doing during different phases of life and what I'm doing. Yeah. And so that speaks to the other component of alienation, right? The conformity. 
And Mm -hmm. so you're hearing these voices of conformity saying, who am I to even want to live like the witch that people seek out in the forest for all sorts of weird questions? (laughs) Right? I love it. such a fun and fruitful reflection. And I hope that it's valuable to you on a more practical level too. But I love how evocative it is. Rachel F., did I see you unmute? Yeah. And this is just a general comment. First of all, I love this question. I don't know if any of you had mentors in the past, again, dating myself over here, but in the 80s as a teen, I went for take your kid to work day. And my dad plopped me down with his an ad agency that he was working with at the time. And th- the exercise they just sat me down with was markers and a big piece of paper. And it says, write what people will say at your funeral. And I'm sure that's a very typical question that if someone's handed a kid for a day, this is what I'm going to give them to do is to think about what, what do they want reflected on about their life. And again, that just seems very much more rooted in that whole kind of alienation piece of it. What will you have done? What were you educated? Those types of things. And um, I just, I love this question so much. Um, And I think when I wrote down, like, why don't I ask the question? Um, And this is tied to like, how do I want to live? But I'm almost afraid to ask the question because I feel like I might mourn the time that I am not living how I want to live which Ash, I think you touched on a little bit too, is some kind of sadness or mourning there as well. Yeah. I think in our very finite and limited lives, there are a lot of trade-offs and there's something in today's late capitalist culture that wants to convince us that we don't have limitations and that our lives are not limited and finite. And I think one of the most subversive things that we can do is express our limitations. But with that also comes comes the recognition of the trade-off and the recognition of there are things that I have to do now because I have to pay my mortgage. There's things I have to do because I have to put food on the table that prevent me from this time of a different way of living, a different way of working, a different whatever it might be. I just wanted to, I guess now I'm seeing Julie's comment is aligned with what I was going to say, which is that like when I think about, obviously as a coach, I've done so much of this work on myself and I do so much of this work with my clients and a lot of my clients, the world I come out of is business schools, right? That's where I spent the majority of my career. So a lot of people who I work with have a background like that. They went, they have their MBA and they participated in that mega capitalism part of our economy. And when I explore questions like this, for them, what I notice is it's how difficult it is for them to uncouple the concept of how I want to live from how I want to work, because many of them have built a lifestyle around things they think are necessary. Mm-hmm. And so when I ask how they want to live, what happens is they say, I want to live the way I don't want to have to change my life in order to change my relationship with work because they're so interlocked. That So all to say, I wonder if there's two thoughts in my mind. I will taste like, how do we, we're talking... <laughs> 
Mm-hmm. So much about unlearning in this class. This seems to me like a fundamental place to unlearn, but it also seems to me like there's an opportunity to nip it in the butt if we can early with our children as they start thinking about their work lives. Yeah. Can we, rather than shoving all our kids to the career services office on their college campuses to think about their resumes and their internships and acquiring these marquee experiences to have them do life design first? I don't know that my college sophomore is getting that. She's sick of me talking to her about this. And you can imagine what it's like to be our kids. They want to punch us. But in terms of reinforcement socially from other voices in her mind, I'm just not sure she's getting that. And- what a loss, I think. Otherwise, we just start funneling them into this kind of channel. And I'm just reflecting on that right now. Yeah. I will say that I noticed that Anne Helen Peterson just today published a big article on redefining what we mean by success in education. I've not had a chance to read it yet, but I'm sure it's excellent and totally relevant <laughs> to this conversation. Oh, yeah. Excellent. And yeah, I literally had that conversation briefly via text with my kid a couple of days ago. She's thinking about what colleges she wants to reach out to for field hockey recruitment. But at the same time, she knows that part of this whole college thing is getting her ready for the world of work. And I said, hey, kid, if you're up for it, I'd love to just sit down with you in a college catalog and like literally show you some of the majors that you've never even considered were a possibility before. Because I didn't have anybody to do that with me and I'd like to do that for you. And she said, yeah, that would be great. And also we have career day coming up. And I'm like, I know you have career day coming up, but that's not what I'm talking about. I guarantee you there's not going to be an anthropologist there. I guarantee you there's not going to be a sports psychologist there. I guarantee you there's not going to be somebody who wrote a dissertation on, I don't know, post-Heideggerian ethics, right? There's There are so many things that you can do with your education that is not job training. And and I actually, at the same conference that I was at on Friday, there was a professor of business from Lycoming College there. And he came up to me after my talk. And I've talked to business professors at liberal arts colleges before, generally not an exciting conversation. But he was like, yeah, I'm the chair of the entrepreneurship program. And we're working with this humanities department and this humanities department and this humanities department to look at where there's synergy because tech companies aren't just hiring engineers, they're hiring anthropologists, they're hiring psychologists. They want to know, they're curious about how AI is impacting all these different things. Oh my God. Yes. Thank you. (laughs) It's so refreshing to hear someone from something a little bit more establishment talking about that stuff, but yeah. Yeah. And the other thing, Nyla, that your comment made me think of too, was this idea of every time we talk about work, we need to be thinking about consumption too. Because when I hear someone say, I don't want to give up this X lifestyle to re to change my relationship with work. What I hear is I don't recognize the ways in which my consumption is driven by the way that I work. And that if we had work that was more sustainable, more humane, more meaningful, more useful, all these different things, our consumption patterns would be completely different. And I think that is an interesting thing. Like how much money gets spent on food out 
because you're too tired at the end of the day to cook? How much money gets spent on new clothing because you just want to feel a little bit better about yourself the next day at work? Right. There's just there's so many layers to the consumption piece. And in a consumption economy, when we think of lifestyle, when we think of how we want to live, we often think about what we want to consume. And and so I think helping someone pick that apart and unpack that is a really valuable thing that we can do. So in the la- oh Susan, thank you for dropping that link. In the last couple of minutes here, there's just one more concept that I want to get in, which is the idea of temporal sovereignty. And I'm grabbing this this term from a book called After Work by Helen Hester and Nick Srinsic. And they talk about temporal sovereignty as being one of the three main principles of a post-work culture. And the idea with temporal sovereignty is that it's a framework for thinking about what we might choose to do and how we might make ourselves outside of current conceptions of work and its responsibilities. And there were just a, there's a couple of passages that I wanted you to have and just a couple of things specifically that I wanted to highlight. First, they say what I think all of us here know is that work for the vast majority of people is not, as it promises to be, a viable means for self-expression, but in fact, an affront to freedom, something that eats up our lives. Um, it does that through consumption. It does that through the way that it colonizes our minds. Um, it does that by the way that we um, learn to know ourselves differently uh, through the kind of work that we do. And then they also make the point that the idea of temporal sovereignty is not a selfish uh, idea, right? It's not, I do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it. It recognizes that we are social beings and temporal sovereignty, therefore, means authoring our own norms and obligations to the collectives in which we live. And that idea of authoring our own norms and obligations, I think, is a fruitful prompt for thinking about the responsibilities that we choose and to rethink through the responsibilities that we already have as things that we choose and unpacking or picking that apart as well. Obviously, we don't have time to get into this question, but maybe something for you to think about over the next week. I made this very loose chart of different kinds of relations that we might be engaged in and thinking about them through the lens of temporal sovereignty, but specifically how this idea of authoring your own norms and expectations. So if you're a parent... What are the norms and expectations that you want to author in that familial relation? If you're a boss, what are the norms and expectations that you want to offer, author in that relationship? If you're the breadwinner of your family, how do you want to offer, author the norms and expectations around that? And I think that, that this question just poses a real opportunity for us to make ourselves through our social relations in the same way that we talked last week about the network self, right? That a core part of who we are is who we are related to and how we relate to others. And this is, a, this is the flip of that, or not the flip, but an extension of that. What does that mean for how we live and the standards that we want to hold ourselves to? So yeah, that's that for today. 
I'm going to go ahead and wrap up just because, like I said, I got to get to field hockey. But I really appreciated the discussion this week. If you have questions, you know how to get a hold of me. You can put them on Clarity Flow or you can email me. Either is fine. And I will get the recording up faster than I did last week. I left for that conference before. For, or with forgetting that I did not upload the recording. So I'm sorry if you went looking for it, but we'll get it up sooner this week. All right. So I'm going to leave you there. Think about your temple sovereignty over the next week. And I look forward to talking to you next week. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.